Well, last week I uh, actually began our series in First Timothy from chapter 2, because the text, it seemed to me, was timely for the July 4th weekend, the weekend coming up on July 4th. But now we're going to go back to the very beginning of First Timothy, chapter 1, page 991 in your pew Bibles. Now, uh, today, as I preach this text, I'd like to just uh, say a word. I realize that uh, after the class, uh, we'll have Sunday, after the service, we'll have Sunday school, and I'm going to be with the uh, middle school and high school kids, and we'll be talking with our, with our students about <laughs> how to listen to one of my sermons. That's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and I guess I can, I could just say to you now, as kind of a heads up, listen carefully. That's all I'm Let me read the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask you now that you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I don't know if you picked this up from the opening paragraph, but um, I want to say that for multiple reasons, for multiple reasons, and we're going to be thinking about these this morning. Paul was quite distressed as he wrote Timothy, whom he calls here, my true son in the faith. This is the first of two letters he wrote to Timothy, and there's a third letter like it, written to another pastor, Titus, who's on the island of Crete. Timothy is in the city of Ephesus. The content is very, very similar. But after naming himself as the writer, after addressing Timothy as the recipient, after giving a standard of greeting, Paul launches into a lecture. He begins to lecture Timothy. There's no uh, pause for an offering of prayer and thanksgiving for Timothy or for the church. 
This is like the book of Galatians. It's like the book of First Corinthians. Paul is is pre predisposed right this way. He is he is upset. He is distressed. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, that's an interesting word here, stewardship. Uh, the word literally comes from two Greek words that mean house and law. House law. And uh, if you look at 1 Timothy 4... Verse uh, 22 with me for a moment. I believe it's verse 22. Let me see. No, it's first. Sorry. If you look at First Timothy 3, verse 14, you see something similar here. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that word household is the very same word that's translated stewardship, believe it or not, in chapter 1. Paul is concerned that the church be properly ordered. It's the church of God that will be properly ordered and, and life be conducted and, and the teaching occur there that's fitting for the household of God. That there be principles and a way of life in there that are in the church that are biblical and are, that are, do not represent distractions and speculations that are now being introduced into the church. He wants the church to get tightened up again in its focus. So when Paul writes this, there are a couple of distressing matters right off the top. I want you to look at them with me. The first distressing matter for him is that there are elders in the church at Ephesus who are using evidently Old Testament genealogies drawing perhaps obscure names from those genealogies to make up stories. They're making up stories, or they're at least accepting these myths, and then they're teaching fables as if they were fact. They are not teaching the truth. And I just say today, you know, there's no end to ways that we can misuse the Scripture. Whether genealogies, whether the numbers you find throughout the Bible, uh, rather the, whether it's a taking just an obscure verse and running with it, whether it's an odd fact. And what's interesting here is that Paul doesn't give the details of the teaching that he objects to. I mean, very few details. Nothing, nothing that enables us to really hammer home exactly what the false doctrines were. He talks about myths and genealogies. He also talks in verses 6 and 7 that, the, that, that there is this attempt to teach the law in a way that contradicts the law itself, to teach the law in a way that is unlawful. The teaching of the law that's occurring is, is contradicting the very purpose of the law. And presumably what this is involves, involves something like this. I mean, the law of God is very sufficient. It's good, it's holy, it's right. It's very sufficient to expose and restrain sin, uh, it can expose and condemn our sin. It can restrain us from doing things that it warns us against. It can guide us. The law has some very fine purposes, but it cannot justify us. It cannot free us from guilt. It cannot purify our motives. It cannot change our hearts. So when Paul says these teachers are 
using the law unlawfully, it may well be that this is exactly what they're doing. They're placing law obedience, they're replacing the gospel with law obedience, as if law obedience is the means by which we come to be accepted and saved by God's grace. But what I want you to notice is the details are very few. The principal objection is what Paul underscores. He says in verse 3 that this is a different doctrine. He says in verse 11 that it is contrary to sound doctrine. And the word there, doctrine, is actually didascalia, I believe, which means teaching. It's contrary to sound teaching that is in accordance with the gospel, the good news of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's very important. Paul is so distressed because what is being taught is not apostolic. It is not the apostolic Christianity that he and the other apostles under the calling of Christ, the commissioning of Christ, under the peculiar filling, extraordinary filling of the Holy Spirit, have undertaken. This instruction, this apostolic Christianity, this is Christianity. A to Z. There's nothing else to Christianity. There's no more to it than apostolic Christianity. It's the only kind of Christianity there is. Christ's command. It's by his command, it's not by Paul's, that the teaching of the church is to be hearing and receiving apostolic instruction. What the apostles taught. And these people are not doing that. They are not doing that. He doesn't, he doesn't matter. Oh, how bad is it? How deviant is it? How misleading? He, you know, he doesn't go into these details. He doesn't parse out their errors. The point is the whole foundation's wrong. They think that the church is a place where you're free to teach something apart from apostolic Christianity, and you're not. That was Paul's whole point. And it was disturbing the church. It was stirring things up. Jesus told the apostles to make disciples of all nations, which is learners of all nations, by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is how we become disciples. This is how the church is healthy. When Paul uses the word sound doctrine, the word sound means healthy. It means healthy. It's used throughout the Gospels about human beings, flesh and blood, who are healthy or um, safe and sound, some of the older translations put it. It sound means healthy. This is what leads to life. It's what leads to vitality. Apostolic instruction is sound instruction. It is healthy. Anything else that comes into the church is not healthy. It is not healthy spiritually. So the first question about teaching or preaching in any church isn't whether it speaks to me, it's not whether it's timely, it's not whether I like it or it makes sense, and honestly, it's not even whether I can find it in the Bible. Because you can make anything come from the Bible. All it takes is a little imagination. All it takes maybe is a little deviousness. All you have to do is ask the devil. Mormons teach that you can be baptized in behalf of dead ancestors in order to bring redemption to them. That is based on a fabricated extension of one obscure verse in 1 Corinthians. 
Roman Catholicism teaches that if you are a believer, that when you die, you go to a place called purgatory, where you are purged of your sins, maybe over the course of tens of thousands of years, and you have to have people on earth also paying um, indulgences and, and, and having requiems, masses said for you, because these prayers and masses being offered will help move you along through purgatory. This is based on a single verse that says nothing about that in 1 Corinthians. Same token that doctrine also teaches, but if you're a woman and die in childbirth, you get a pass and you go straight to heaven, based on the last verse of 1 Timothy 2. Is that apostolic instruction? It is not. It is not. It's fabricated. It's spun off the scripture with nothing. So the question is whether teaching is apostolic. The question is, is the truth that the apostles taught, is it what, is it what we are now hearing as the truth? Or are we hearing something else? To use Paul's word, are we hearing something different? You remember in the book of Acts, Paul was having kind of a rough time making it through what we call Greece today. But when he came to Berea, the, the Luke observes, who wrote Acts, that these Berean Christians, this Berean church was noble. And what made them noble was that they would search the scriptures to see if, in fact, the things that Paul was teaching were true. And I'm going to say that it is the obligation of the whole church to keep the church on track with apostolic teaching. The teaching uh, to hear and learn and grow in teaching that is what the apostles taught. Brings me to Paul's second distress. Paul's second distress is Timothy, his true son in the faith. He had told Timothy to face, face to face, he told him, You go to Ephesus, you set things right. And because things are not going well there. And he says, the first thing that you do is you shut down these elders who are fueling speculations. They're stirring up quarrels. They're upsetting households. They're teaching these myths. They're misusing the law. And in fact, Timothy had gone, but he hadn't done what he'd been told to do. And now he had begun to falter. And Paul writes this letter to Timothy, first and foremost, as a personal admonition. Second Timothy, when you read it, is much gentler. But the point he's making to Timothy from the outset is, Timothy, you are not free to abandon your post. You must remain in Ephesus. And you are not free to retreat from your responsibilities. You must charge these elders to stop. It didn't matter if he thought he was too young. It didn't matter if someone else thought he was too young for the job. It didn't matter if doing this made Timothy's tummy hurt, there was wine for that, he must fulfill his calling. And underlying these two sources of distress in Paul, there was a third. And the third is expressed most explicitly in 2 Timothy, but it's simply this, that Paul knew he was going to die soon. He was aged, he was infirm, he was nearly spent. 
He had adversaries who wanted him dead. He had colleagues who had abandoned him, even colleagues at one time, colleagues who had stabbed him in the back. So he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come of my departure. Now dying personally doesn't bother Paul. He looks forward to finishing his race. He looks forward to being with the Lord. Death is gain. His distress was over the welfare of the church in the future. What is next? What will happen? How will the success or succession continue? The days the apostles were coming to an end, the period when when. There were men who could speak with the immediate authority of Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That period was coming to a close. And there's no question, if you read First and Second Timothy and Titus as well, these last or final epistles, most likely, that his paramount concern was for the future of the church. It was centered on the continued teaching of sound doctrine in accordance with with the gospel of the glory, the good news of the blessed God, whom, with whom, with which I, Paul says, have been entrusted. So this false teaching of the church, so Timothy's wavering, it played right in with this, this un- underlying distress he was feeling about, I'm going to die. Is the church, am I ready to pass on? Are there people to whom I can pass on what has been entrusted to me? So Paul in this epistle intervenes with his full apostolic authority. Just as he had done with the Galatians. Just as he had done with the, the Corinthians. Jumped right into it. But now the days of those interventions was coming to an end. And now others must be entrusted with what he had been entrusted with. Who will those successors be? Who will guard what Paul in these epistles calls the doctrine, which is literally the teaching. It is the apostolic teaching. It's what the early post-apostolic church called the rule of faith. Who will teach it? Who will model it? Who will defend it? Who will confront for it? Who will even die for it? Because the church cannot be preserved and the Word of God cannot continue without those commitments. Surely it's not enough to have Bibles on our shelves. Bibles in our pews. Paul writes at length about finding trustworthy Christians. Beginning with the selection of elders. Very keen on that in 1 Timothy and also in Titus and entrusting them also with what he calls the faith, the good deposit. They're to learn, and then to teach, and then finally to entrust the revelation given about Christ, given from Christ, to others. And this, if you've ever heard of the phrase apostolic succession, this is what true apostolic succession is. This is how the faith is passed on. This is how the church is preserved and strengthened in its vitality over time. 
apostolic succession, who's going to replace the Apostle Paul? Who's going to replace the Apostle Peter? It is not determined by an elite circle of experts meeting in secret, sending smoke to a smokestack. It is the response of the entire church to foster this commitment, to foster apostolic succession. It's the one thing we must bequeath to the next generation, or the next generation dies. And that calls not only for the truth to be in hand, but for faithful, trustworthy people to take it on themselves, to learn it, to teach it, to entrust others with it. Now what makes all this possible is that the teaching of the apostles has been preserved, it has been set down in writing, it is for us in the New Testament. It was not composed in a language that was sophisticated and known only to a few. It was composed in the common language of the day. It wasn't just Greek, it's called Koine Greek. Koine means common, it was common Greek. You know, people began to look at the Greek manuscripts during the, uh, I don't know when this was, but I think it was during the Renaissance. Anyway, the point is, when they began to be studied, the New Testament manuscripts, it was discovered that that Greek was different from classical Greek. And for a time, Christians taught that there was an inspired language, a language for the New Testament, uh, that the New Testament was written in, was a language God inspired just for the New Testament. But then they discovered, no, no, this is not classical Greek. This is the language and the, of the people as they talked about it on the street as they talked life on the street. This was the common language. This was the language everyone knew. The New Testament was written in a language so everyone who heard it read could understand it, and everyone who knew how to read their own street language, everyone who knew how to read the most basic language could read this book. It's for all of us to learn. It is for all of us to teach. It's for all of us to entrust to others. Generation by generation. It's not for it's not about cramming facts in our heads or seeing how many Bibles, commentaries we can put on our shelves. It is about love. That's what Paul says. This is about love. Contrary to the false teachers or those who are teaching other things, Paul says something different. Paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now every one of us in this room knows that it's our duty to love. And we struggle to love. I suspect every one of us does, I'm sure. But we don't deny the importance of love. You know, it's right up there with faith and hope. But what's less clear is that unless we are immersed, unless our hearts are immersed in apostolic teach our hearts cannot hold on to love we can't love is not our default position as human beings it's just not we have an arsenal of lies to justify our failing to love God and our failing to love others and Jesus identified a number of these lies if people hate you hate them back Hate your enemy. Hate those who've wronged you. Hate those even who disagree with you. Just love those who love you first and who love you back or who love you most. 
Love as long as it requires little of you. Love as long as it feel, you feel like it, because love ultimately is just a feeling. There are a multitude of persuasive lies that keep us from loving. Even as Christians, that keep us from loving. I'm telling you, if our hearts, and that's through our minds, is not immersed in the apostolic teaching, our love will grow cold. So we're talking here not about being Bible brainiacs, we're talking about being a healthy and sound church. Our love has to be grounded in something greater than ourselves. It can purify our hearts, cleanse our consciences, still faith in us, hope, and that is apostolic teaching. Our God and our Creator causes the sun to rise on the vile and on the good, who sends rain on the righteous and on the righteous, and on the unrighteous rather, and who sent his son to cover the sins of his enemies with his own blood, which they shed. This is where we learn about love. This is where we learn about kindness. This is where we learn about mercy. This is where we learn about being like God. And this can purify our hearts so we no longer live bound to sin. So that the lust to gratify ourselves is displaced with a desire to glorify this one true God who loves us so. There's a, a deep and a lasting change in personal loyalty from ourselves to God and that has to occur in order for us to love as we say we think we should be. This can free us from the terrors of the bad conscience. Our broken humanity is restored by God's assurance that he has removed our guilt from us and his son has taken that guilt upon himself and suffered the penalty for our sin. When that happens and we understand it, we are freed from the terror of a bad conscience. We are free to welcome rather than tremble at the urge to do right. To welcome rather than tremble when we feel a warning to avoid the wrong. We don't, we don't understand conscience and right and wrong as something really to just add to our misery because we are in a place of guilt. We look at this conscience leading us, probing us, guiding us. It's not absolute truth, but it is a guide in doing right and wrong. We see it as a friend to us. We welcome it. We appreciate it. We know it's part of how God made us because He loves us, not because He wants to condemn us. It not only purifies our hearts, frees us from the terrors of a bad conscience, gives us a good conscience, impels us to trust the Lord with our life. So we live simply, honestly. So we just live simply before people. We don't put on airs. We don't pretend to be someone we are not. His acceptance of us fully satisfies us. We're okay. We are free to be genuine through and through. We accept ourselves now because of Christ. And that's why Paul asserts himself so strongly in 1 Timothy with the apostolic authority that he had in behalf of the apostolic faith for the sake of Christ's love. 
And he felt the weight of responsibility for that truth that had been given to him. It must be passed on as way too weak. It must be entrusted to others. Others must be willing to be entrusted with it, to take it to themselves. Don't leave it to a church company. Now, in the same way, we recognize, this is our calling in Christ, we recognize apostolic authority. We submit to it even when the apostolic faith and the teaching seems disagreeable to our ears. We meditate on it. We do submit ourselves to it. We dwell on it and dwell in it for the sake of transforming Christ-like love. We embrace it. Embrace it. We, we, we learn it. We teach it. We defend it. We entrust it to others as those who have been entrusted with it. Because folks, today, Timothy is not here. That church of Ephesus is long gone. This is our watch. And this is our hour of duty. Let's pick up. Our Father, we do love you and thank you so much for all the apostles, for your son first and foremost, the apostles whom he chose, Apostle Paul in particular, to whom he appeared after Jesus rose from the dead, that persecutor and murderer, the Christian. Your choices were perfect. Your choices were perfect. And now we have this body of faith, this rule of faith, this apostolic teaching, doctrine, this good deposit, and it has even been written down and preserved and inscripturated and put into our own common language. And now, Lord, in your providence and by your spirit, you don't pass it to us, you entrust it to us for the time that we have it, till we entrust it to someone else as the hour of our departure nears. Pray, Lord, as a church, you find us faithful and that we would settle for nothing different than what we're willing to hear, what we're willing to give ourselves to learn, and what, and what we're to be most passionate about so we can be healthy and sound as individuals and as a church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.